0: So, guys, what uh, this week's been pretty, pretty bad considering everything that's (laughs) going on. It's
1: been, it just sucks. It just
0: sucks. Is anybody listening? Hello and welcome to the Collier County Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I am the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have the first part of our interview with Dr. Seva Reese from FGCU's Water School, where he is a professor of coastal resilience and climate adaptation. In part one of our interview, we look at how communities plan for the effects of climate change and what kind of effects we are expecting to see here in Collier County. We, as always, have our panel discussion where we dive into the COVID resurgence here in Florida. In full disclosure, we intended to dive into some other topics such as the environment or the economy, but the explosion of cases and the growing number filling up our hospitals around the state, in particular here in southwest Florida, compelled us to do a little bit of a longer dive into the numbers. But before we get into that, let's get some party info out of the way. We have Biden signs. So are you sick of seeing Trump signs and Trump flags in your neighborhood? And are you ready to let the maskless MAGA hat wearing crowd know where you stand? You can get your Biden sign delivered to your house by one of our volunteers for a donation of $10. So please go to our website and request a sign today. We really would like to see as many Biden signs out there in all of the neighborhoods here in Southwest Florida. So please reach out to us. In an effort to support our candidates, we are putting on candidate spotlights so that our voters can listen to the candidates and hear what they plan to do to help their constituents. We have had two spotlights so far with David Turiu-Biartez Jr. for County Commission District 5 and Laura Novosad for Florida House District 80. And our next event is on Tuesday, July 14th at 5.30. It's a virtual event. You can sign up for that on our website or on our Facebook page. That event on Tuesday is for Sarah McFadden in Florida House District 106. So please sign up for that today. And each subsequent week, we will focus on another candidate in the race. We have three other candidates coming up. So please check our website for those dates and sign up. We will have audio and video of each spotlight available on the podcast as they are done and on our website as well. So check that out. We're excited to announce that we exceeded the match for Marv's match in only four days and raised nearly $6,000 in donations over the weekend. So a huge thank you to all who donated. It would help us get Democrats and non-Democrats who realize we need to move in a different direction. Help us get all of those people to the polls in November. So thank you so much. And finally, the Florida Democratic Party has their big Leadership Blue Gala on July 18th at 6 p.m. It's, again, a virtual event. The speaker is the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. There are tickets still available for that virtual event, but they are going fast. So if you would like to sign up, they are $50, and you can sign up at www.floridadems.org. So check it out. As always, all of the information can be found on our website, www.callyordems.org. And that's all we have for this week on Party News. So we'll be right back with part one of our interview with Dr. Severis.
1: If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support.
0: On today's podcast, we have Dr. Michael Severis. Dr. Severice is a professor of coastal resilience and climate adaptation at FGCU's water school. Dr. Severice, thank you very much for coming on.
2: Thanks, Jeff. And, and please call me, call me Mike.
0: Okay. So, Mike, um, let's just start with what does your uh, title mean when you say that you're a professor of coastal resilience and climate adaptation? What are you researching?
2: Yeah. Um coastal resilience is really all about, uh, how well, uh, our coastal region responds to change over time. How well do we come back after some impact of one kind or another? And coastal resilience is, is really, uh, more affected by climate change than anything else. So, uh, someone who's interested in coastal resilience and climate adaptation is really trying to understand what the, a climate aspect to the water school makes good sense. And, um, really excited about being here to serve in an official capacity to help the region.
0: Awesome. So why don't you uh, give us a, a brief overview of the different uh, things that you're doing to help local communities? I know we talked uh, before we started, um, but why don't you list off the different uh, municipalities and people that you're working with so that they
2: know who, who you're trying to help out with these, these types of issues. Yeah, sure. I, you know, uh, just a quick segue uh, into this climate change uh, has a variety of effects. Um, the, the effects that I seem to be most uh, or best trained to deal with are the effects of sea level rise and increased storminess over time. And, and as a coastal region, those are probably the two that are of greatest consequence for Southwest Florida, but there's also increases in temperature and the human health effects associated with that and changes in precipitation and flooding. Uh, so there's a real long litany of the kinds of problems our region has to deal with. But as far as um, sea level rise and storminess, as far as they're concerned, um, our region has really um, become proactive in addressing those problems. And um, we've got a number of cooperative programs going on in the region that bring in um, government at the county level, and at the municipal city levels. And we're also involved with um, civic groups and, and civic leaders, as well as the general public. So... At the moment, um, Collier County has a large project that I'm involved with that brings uh, uh, six years of, of of science to help Collier County understand its vulnerability to sea level rise, storminess, and most recently to uh, freshwater inundation from from changes in precipitation because of climate change. And that involves Collier County government and um, the county manager and the managerial staff the people that are doing the work, uh, the cities of Marco Island, Everglades City, and, and Naples, and involves a lot of uh, natural resource agencies and groups and cultural resource managers. And what we're doing there is we're actually uh, using computer modeling tools, uh, uh, providing glimpses, if you will, of what the Collier County landscape might look like as we move into the future as Storms become more intense and perhaps more frequent and as sea level continues to go up. And then from those modeled, mapped simulations, then managers um, can sit down and look at how the landscape is impacted. Uh, And then Collier County and the cities are using that and will eventually use that information to do some planning. You
0: mentioned some of the impacts there. Let's let's dive into that. What are the impacts that climate change will have here in Southwest Florida? What are we seeing already? And, you know, what could we expect here in the future?
2: Yeah, gosh, uh, again, for me, you know, my main focus is on on sea level rise and storms. Uh, and certainly the impacts there are already very, very obvious. But there are also the other impacts associated with the atmospheric temperature rise and changes in rainfall patterns. And we've seen impacts uh, there as well. But probably the ones that are most obvious to people are the ones associated with the passage of tropical storms and hurricanes. I mean, Irma is still fresh in everybody's mind. Um, um, Everybody says, you know, Collier County uh, dodged a bullet uh, when it came to Irma. That's not necessarily true because Everglades City was impacted very severely by by Irma, as was uh, parts of Marco Island. And it's those um, increased storm intensities. And uh, storm sizes and, and the fact that storms are moving more slowly um, as, uh, as the planet warms, that's going to augment or increase and exacerbate the effects of storms on our coast. So that's probably the most dire of consequences, I would argue, and that is dealing with more powerful hurricanes that are potentially hitting our, our region um, as we move into the future. So I, I wanna
0: just dive into that a little bit more. You said that the can you explain why the a hurricane would A become more intense and then B why it would move more slowly? I mean, as a lifelong Floridian, I've can remember growing up here that storms never or rarely got to above a category three yeah. and now it feels like almost all of the storms get up to a category five at some point. Um, and so I'm curious if you could just dive into that a little bit more in detail on why does a storm get more intense and why does a storm? storm yeah,
2: down? Uh, all good questions, and and the science is reasonably good. I can tell you that you know probably the the greatest uh, fueler of of tropical storms and hurricanes is sea surface temperature. So as the atmosphere warms over time, you know we've seen global warming. It's it's a real phenomenon. Uh, that energy gets transferred from the atmosphere to the oceans. And we've seen progressively warmer sea surface temperatures in the regions that generate or fuel hurricanes, the Atlantic, the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico. So I know you've probably heard about um, forecast for this hurricane season, it's supposed to be well above average. And one of the predictors for that well above average is that sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic are at a record high for this time of year. And so as sea surface temperature continues to increase, There's greater energy to fuel a hurricane. And that's the reason for two things storms gathering in strength very, very quickly. You know, um, if you think about some recent storms, Michael, Dorian, or even Irma, you know, they were all, you know, you went to bed one night and they were a category one or two, and you woke up the next morning and they were a cat four or five. So they're fueling more rapidly uh, and they just have more energy to draw on. And so that's. So your, your observation in, through your life here in Florida, where there are more, uh, more powerful hurricanes, uh, is real and is a consequence of climate change. And it's easy, it's easy to sort of lose track of, of the connection between climate change and tropical storm uh, intensity, um, simply because you know, even, even in times of much colder uh, atmospheric temperature, we've had hurricanes. You know? You've had hurricanes when you were, when you were a youngster, before the planet had warmed appreciably. It's just that the, the, the probability of having larger storms, a greater number of storms, has gotten greater and greater. And then, of course, predicting where those storms are going to go is not directly related to climate change. So it may be a, a wicked hurricane season with lots of uh, major storms, but none of them make landfall, so they don't, they don't, uh, they're not paid attention to or people don't associate them with climate
0: but if you moved off of storm intensity and you went into sea level rise, what kind of sea level rise would we look to see here in, yeah. in Collier County? You know, so
2: there's this sort of chronic and slow creeping uh, impact of sea level rise that people often refer to as sunny day flooding or king tide flooding or nuisance flooding, chronic flooding. Uh, they're all essentially the same thing. You know, As we move forward through uh, a gradual in- in- increase in sea level heights, High tides get higher every year. And so when you get a king tide, you know, when you've got a full moon or a new moon or when the moon is closer to the earth a few times uh, during the year where that tidal forcing is even greater, we really feel the effects of those extreme tides because sea level has has creeped up. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've driven around Collier County in the Naples area, and there are places where, you know, there are times that, Streets are flooded. Gulf Shore Drive, for example, is very often flooded. Sometimes that's um, uh, most of the time. That's fresh water that's being lifted up by the rising seawater within the subsurface. So fresh water floats; it's less dense than seawater. And as tides go up, the seawater permeates the soils and the sediments, and that raises the freshwater table, which is what causes the flooding on Gulf Shore Drive. So when you're driving along Gulf Shore Drive and there's standing water in the streets, if you tasted it, it would be fresh, but it's being perched on top of higher tidal water that's moving through the subsurface. Uh, So nuisance flooding um, has become a real concern here. Our stormwater management people in the cities and in the county have been dealing with the consequences of sea level rise on their stormwater management technologies and practices. And they've had to invest a lot of time and money in adapting to those ever increasing tides. So, I mean, the Florida Keys have been experiencing nuisance flooding with great severity for a while, and um, as you know, they're having to make some difficult decisions. Do you invest money in raising road grades, or you know, do you do you just continue to deal with the problem or leave people stranded in certain areas during certain times of the year? So, so that's a real problem here in Collier County. It's nowhere near as Dramatic as it is in the Keys or in Miami Beach, you've probably heard about um, Miami Beach yeah. dealing with um, their king tide flooding. They've been installing pumps and investing money in higher road grades. They've that those communities have been, have invested a lot of money into improving their resilience by by uh, engineering the problem away, at least for a little while.
0: What is the reason Miami having? I mean, because I think the overall. Uh, elevation here in collier county is ultimately a little lower than than it is over in Miami. maybe not miami beach but why is miami having such a distinct issue whereas we have seemed like the, uh, localized issues in gulf shore drive and whatnot yeah i
2: you know i i think I, I i don't know for a fact that miami beach has any better elevation than we do in our in our in our coastal front frontage area i think the parts of miami beach that are chronically flooding are, are quite low. Um, uh, and I, I, I'll, I'll speculate on the rest of this because I don't really know the answer, but I suspect that a lot of it may be uh, contrasts in the porosity and permeability of the soils, rock and sediment that's below the surface. You know, a lot of what happens with this nuisance flooding isn't, isn't seawater coming over over the road in air but rather seawater moving through the subsurface and perching the fresh water on top of it, displacing it upward. That's what's happening in Miami, on Miami Beach and on Gulf Shore Drive. And it may be that, um, you know, the rocks and sediments uh, on certain parts of the coast um, allow the passage of that tidal water through the subsurface more readily than they do here. Um, again, just a speculation.
0: Right. So you mentioned that they're installing pumps and doing types of things. Is that where we are right now with regard to climate change? I mean, are we, that sounds like we're going to, you know, it's coming and here are some things that we can do to basically deal with the effects of it. Or are we, is there still time to kind of address the climate change to stop the, this from happening?
2: Yeah. I, I, I think you might've asked two questions in there. One is, one is, uh, you know, uh, how, how long can you manage, uh, the problem until it becomes so severe that you have to give up and try a different strategy. Um, and then maybe the other part of the question in there is just how severe is it here in, in the present and in the near future? You know, the, the, the answer to the first question, you know, when, when does when is ad- essentially the first question is when is adaptation no longer possible, and you have to you have to pack up and run, and you have to move. You know that's a that's a difficult question to answer, and a lot of it depends upon what kind of financial investment you're willing to make. I mean, if you are the Netherlands and uh, you are uh, not only experiencing um, sea level rise but a subsiding landscape, you know that nation has invested greatly in in creating. The walls to keep the ocean out Uh, that could be a solution for some communities as we move into the more distant future when the impacts become greater Um, does that make sense for uh, collier county and our uh, our economy our tourism economy probably not i like to i like to say uh, that we have a pretty good understanding of how bad things are likely to get between now and 2060 Um, And after 2060, the possibilities vary greatly in terms of the severity of sea level height. Um, And that's partly a function of two things. One, not knowing how the global society is going to change its carbon use practices, right? Are we going to all adhere to the Paris Agreement and uh, minimize the temperature increase to one and a half degrees centigrade or two degrees centigrade? Or are we going to continue to do business as usual and not uh, cut our carbon emissions? You know that sends us down very different um, pathways when it comes to sea level rise, as well as other things like like temperature and the human health effects of a of a of a hot world. The other thing that uh, makes 2060 and beyond more uncertain is that um, there's new understanding of the cryosphere, the, the basic frozen parts of the planet, the glaciers, particularly on Antarctica and on Greenland, when you melt that ice and melt a lot of it and you put that, that melted uh, ice water into the, into the oceans, you know, there's a great capacity for large amounts of sea level rise and how bad it gets is partly a function of how much ice loss uh, occurs. Uh, And 2060 seems to be the time when we're at these thresholds where, you know, where uh, the consequences could be dire. So the way I've been working with government and with with communities to help prepare, I view this as kind of a a two-pronged endeavor. One is to understand your vulnerabilities now and do your best to adapt to those vulnerabilities as you move forward to at least 2060. Um, when things are sustainable and maybe the financial investments aren't that great and we don't become an, a Netherlands <laughs> by then. And then at the same time, work towards smaller communities taking on uh, better carbon use practices to reduce their greenhouse footprints. And hopefully that happens not only at the local level, but at the state, national and international levels so that you know we don't go beyond that one and a half degrees or two degrees centigrade. And we don't feel the worst possible effects by the time 2100 rolls around.
0: Can you talk about, you said that we know, basically, we have a pretty good understanding of where, how much sea level rise we can expect by 2060. What what does that look like? Yeah, you know,
2: there's three organizations that I seem to have the most faith in, in terms of um, sea level rise predictions. One is that Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is a huge organization of scientists, managers, thousands of people from around the world that come together and through consensus and in a very conservative way um, do the modeling and interpret the information and help inform um, managers. And they provide um, sea level rise predictions. Uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, basically um, our federal agency that's uh, charged with helping us understand our climate and our weather, along with other things. And then every couple of years, every few years, the the nation, the U.S. puts together a national climate assessment, um, which is similar to the IPCC in its approach, but just uh, focuses on uh, the United States. And it's interesting, I was just corresponding with uh, some people this morning, and it's amazing how different they can be, particularly when you move beyond 2060 towards 2100. I can tell you that I'm looking at a a table now of predicted magnitudes uh, published by NOAA um, in 2017. And these are actually the the projections that Collier County is using in their vulnerability and adaptation planning study uh, that I mentioned. Uh, earlier in the conversation, and you know these are uh, values in feet. In twenty thirty, uh, which is you know just ten years away, uh, sea level, uh, based on NOAA's predictions, could be as low as uh, four tenths of a foot. I'm sorry that these are in in uh, not in inches, but you know um, basically between a third and a quarter, a third and a half a foot uh, to as uh, maybe one and a quarter feet uh, on the high end for 2030. When you move out to 2100, okay, so move us ahead, 80 years, NOAA's, uh, highs and lows range from a low of one and a third foot higher than it is, uh, currently to as much as eight and a third feet higher than it is today. Eight feet higher in 2100 is very different than one and a quarter feet higher in 2100. Um, the IPCC estimates, they just came out with a new set of information um, in 2019 back in September, and their numbers are less and um, and and more hopeful looking, um, again, out in 2100 um, than NOAA's numbers are. The National um, Climate Assessment are more in line with NOAA than it is with IPCC. Uh, so what creates problems for managers and what creates confusion for people who are not, you know, climate scientists is what do you deal with such um, variability um, as you move further out into the future? I mean, it's one thing um, to say you're going to have to deal with a a foot and a half of sea level rise, and it's another to tell you you have to deal with eight feet of sea level rise. And then how do you make people understand that uh, the models could produce such different estimations um but again it's related to the two problems i mentioned earlier that you know a lot of it depends upon what society does with its carbon and uh and what happens to all that ice
0: so what would one foot increase mean in collier county if it in 2030 in 10 years if if we got close to the high end of the estimate what does that look like in terms of impact to the local? Yeah, community? if
2: if we get uh, the the lower estimate, the one and a half foot or the, or well, the eight
0: feet. Well, I'm well, I'm talking about in ten the next years, ten, ten, years ten years that Noah that Noah looked at. So you had a whatever it was, four tenths yeah, of a foot to as much as a of, foot. Of, oh, correct. Like, what does that look like? Impact in real? You know, I mean, I I think as a as a a novice, somebody who, a lay person who doesn't know this stuff as well, you hear these eight foot is obviously understandable, but one foot to the average person, I don't know if they can really grasp what that would, how that would impact things around them. Like what would change
2: if it went up by one foot? Yeah. Well, to put it in perspective, you know, sea level's gone up um, eight inches, roughly, here in Southwest Florida since the early 1990s, and um, uh, so eight eight inches in um, I guess that's 30 years. The other thing, the other thing to keep in mind is the rate at which sea level is going up is accelerating through time. So um, we may have seen just uh, eight inches of sea level rise in the last 25 years. Um, But the next 25 years, the rate is going to be higher because of that accelerated rate. Um, But, you know, with eight inches of additional uh, sea level, uh, nuisance flooding wasn't an issue um, uh, in the 1990s for any community uh, in the United States. Um, At least nuisance flooding not associated with storms. So king tide, king tide flooding just didn't occur. Um, If you add another, you know, foot on top of that, um, you know, then... Uh, the kind of nuisance flooding we're going to have to deal with here in Collier County is going to be as severe as the kind of nuisance flooding they're experiencing in, um, uh, Charleston's one that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, dealing with the magnitude of the kinds of problems we're likely to have, um, within 10 years. Um, Baltimore is another good example of, uh, um, nuisance flooding that's beyond a nuisance, maybe even Miami beach, you know, something, um, a a comparable situation in Miami Beach. The other thing is, you know, as you raise sea level and then you put a storm on top of that, remember, you know, when you hear about uh, people predicting or worrying about storm surge, really what they're talking about is, um, what if, um, you know, the, the, the level of the ocean goes up when air pressure decreases. So you put a low pressure system over the Gulf of Mexico and the surface of the Gulf of Mexico rises, okay? All right, now put that rise in the Gulf of Mexico surface at highest tide, okay? Highest tide in the tidal cycle. Uh, and now all of a sudden the tidal effects are much, much greater uh, along the Florida coast. And then on top of that, throw in um, now um, the winds, onshore winds associated with a you know, high cat storm, all right, and you're piling um, storm surge on top of that low pressure bulge. And then put waves on top of that, you know, and now you've got all of those um, uh, processes creating uh, a wall of water that's impinging upon the coast. Um, So the sea level rise not only only creates the nuisance and chronic flooding problem, but it exacerbates the effects of storms. You know, uh, when you look at these storms like uh, Dorian, uh, which just basically stopped over the Bahamas, or Harvey, which stopped um, over coastal Texas, you know, they had to experience multiple high tidal cycles through, uh, through the impact of that storm. So, um, you know, you go through two, three, four high tides with all of that storm effects on top of it. It's just a, you know, the, 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 the potential for devastation is so much greater. So
0: that's the end of part one of our interview with Dr. Severis. Stick around for our panel discussion.
3: This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot this November, and we need your help. We cannot do many of the things we normally do this election year, but there are still many activities that are safe and can be done from home. We need volunteers to help out with things like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank that will help us win in November. If you have the time to help us, please go to www.callyourdem.s.org. That's www.callyourdems.org, And click on the Get Involved button and become a volunteer. With your help, we can win in November.
0: Obviously, coronavirus, uh, we're going to talk about that again. It's like Groundhog Day. It seems every week we we bring this back up, but the news gets worse and worse every single week and the numbers keep growing higher and higher. And uh, Amber, do you want to go ahead and dive into where we are right now with the uh, pandemic?
3: I remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this and how shocked we were at the numbers and how fast they were rising. And I mean, we're not even in the same ballpark anymore as to where we were two weeks ago. In the US, we had another high, 52,788 new cases. 45 states have had a seven day average higher than the week before. And we are at 2.6 million plus cases in the US total. And Florida, as of the numbers that just came out today, which is July 2nd, we have reached another high that we've ever had at 10,109 new cases being reported, um, which is only 900 or so more than New York's highest number of cases that they had at the height of their outbreak. So these numbers are just staggering. If you look at the average in Florida from June 18th through July 1st, about the last two weeks, our positivity rate of the tests that are coming back is hovering right around 20%, give or take, depending on the day. So one in five people who are getting tested are coming back positive.
1: That sucks. That sucks. (laughs) Just sucks. Yeah. That sucks. So bad. But again, again, Collier County had a meeting. They did decide to shut the beaches down for this July 4th holiday. So yay them. But boo on the fact that they wouldn't touch mandatory mask wearing in our fair city that thinks masks are a communist statement.
3: Yeah, it's still it's still shocking to me. And we've been seeing since these numbers have been going up, we've been seeing mandatory masks going in place around, obviously around the country, but also around Florida. Here are some of the cities and counties in Florida that have already instituted mandatory mask orders. St. Pete, all of the Keys, Miami-Dade, Sarasota, St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Lakeland, Sanibel, Tampa, Pasco County, Longboat Key, Anna Maria Island, Palm Beach County, Orange County, which is Orlando, and Fort Myers Beach, yet Collier County has still not made any advances to pushing this forward, which just seems, it seems crazy. And I think we talked about last time how one of the commissioners mentioned that, well, how are you going to implement this? Well, look at all of these other counties. It's obviously something that is able to be done. So it's just a total lack of of leadership and we're not going to see any improvement until we
2: get
0: more leadership. Yeah, so I mean, I think the other thing is, is that, you know, Linda, you mentioned the county commissioners uh, closing the beaches, I guess, well done to them. But it was still a three to two vote with Commissioner Bill McDaniel and Penny Taylor voting against closing the beaches. Um, Evidently, the numbers and spikes were not enough to convince them. Uh, And then, as you said, all but one Andy Solis, county commissioner for District two, actually stated that he was in favor of masks because he felt at this point doing so out of the abundance of caution was better than doing nothing. But the other four were not convinced and they all said that people had to take personal responsibility, but evidently that personal responsibility doesn't extend to their role as county commissioner to do anything. And that was after the Collier County Medical Association. Did a presentation to them recommending the use and the effectiveness of masks and so. I just find it amazing that people who have no medical background can listen to someone say that this is in the best interest of the community and then say, but we're not going to do that. These are people that were elected to lead the community and they're supposed to get information and they're supposed to get expert advice and then make decisions that are in the best interest of the community. And I don't see how when the medical professionals are stating that it is in the best interest of the community to wear masks and to mandate that, and they decide against it, how you should ever take them seriously for that role to lead the community. Your judgment is compromised, and every voter should remember that as we move forward through this time.
3: And to go with that, as these numbers across the country, and in particular Florida, have continued to rise to exponential levels. You have a president who just two weeks ago said at his rally that when we do the testing to the extent that we're doing, that we're going to find more people and you're going to find more cases. So he says, quote, I say to my people, slow down the testing, please. And, you know, of course, after this statement, which just seems ludicrous when you're in the middle of a pandemic, his people and people who support him say, oh, he's just tongue in cheek and, you know, doesn't really mean that. Well, then a couple of days after his rally with an interview with uh, Scripps, he was asked specifically about slowing down testing and he doubled down on it and said that he did not think that we needed to increase the testing and that the reason that we have these high numbers was because we have more testing. Um, of course, then his, his uh, press secretary the following day said he was just kidding to which the next day the president tweeted, I do not kid. So obviously this is, this is the the information that is coming out. Yeah. It's it's just ludicrous. He doesn't kid, but
0: (laughs) he's not joking people. He's you have never serious. seen this man do. Everything joke. that he's doing. This
3: man does not. I've know. never. He quite
0: doesn't quite have frankly, a sense of humor. Do you know what the most disturbing thing is? I've never seen the man laugh.
3: Think I'd about that. He, in yeah. four
0: years, like just a real laugh. I've seen him kind of go, huh, or make something. He doesn't laugh at all, yeah. ever. He you laughs at the
3: expense of other people. Is And yeah, it's not a laugh. But But it's not laughter. He gets pleasure at the expense of other people
0: i just there's so many human emotions that this president does not experience at all
3: this is also the same guy who literally yesterday after our country has had the highest daily numbers that they have ever seen virus started in a fox news interview yesterday he says i think we're going to be very good with the coronavirus i think that at some point that's going to sort of disappear i hope (laughs) like that's the (laughs) that's the he's not
0: kidding He's, he's not, not kidding. kidding.
3: He is not kidding. That is he's what not he, kidding. he He really wants it to go away. But he doesn't want to do anything
0: about it. Now, that I believe. I don't think he's joking. He wants it to go away. but.
1: I mean, shit. I want it to go away too. But I'm not the president of Fantasyland. So it is not going to go away. It's, it's here to stay.
0: Yeah. And, he, and to your point, Amber, when you say that he says that he wants a testing to go down, It's part of this Republican narrative that that DeSantis has been pushing, which is that as we increase testing, that's the cause of all these new cases that are coming forward. Well, the Naples Daily News just did an analysis of the Florida Department of Health data, and they found and stated emphatically that the increases that we're seeing are not attributed to the rise in testing.
3: And for just uh, for the record, DeSantis, yeah, he was totally towing that, that line, uh, that narrative about the uh, increase in testing was the reason for the increase in cases. But he did just last week pivot on that point and said that testing does not account for the spike that we're seeing. So we go back to what Jeff said about the increase in testing and how that doesn't necessarily account for all of the increases in our new cases. And sure, does that have some effect? Of course, if you are not testing a lot of the population, you are certainly not getting an accurate depiction of the number of of actual cases that there are out there. So as testing increased, of course, cases also increased. But as we've talked about before, that's where the positivity rate comes in. If testing increases, the amount of people in the population that have coronavirus, there is an actual number for that. So if you test more of them or you test less of them, that number should be about the same. Of course, if you have a larger sample size, then you should get more accurate towards what that that number actually is. Here's a little example that I saw that I thought kind of explained this positivity rate. And let's take coronavirus out of that because Everybody gets political about it. So let's just do a very simple example of simple numbers. Let's say you run a candy bar factory and you know that in this factory, you're going to get insects in your factory and they're going to get into the candy bar. So you want a quality control test to see how much insects you have in your candy bar. So let's just say you've got 10%, 10% of your candy bars are gonna have insects in them. So if you were to test a 1,000 of your candy bars, you should expect to see about a 100 of those come back as having insects in them. That's, that would show you have about a 10% rate. Now, if we increase the testing and we keep that the same, we keep that number the same, but we increase the amount of tests we do. Now, let's say we do 2,000 tests. Well, we should expect to see about 200 candy bars now that have insects in them. If we test 5,000, we should expect to see about 500 that come back. So yes, the numbers of candy bars that are coming back with insects has increased, but the rate between those is still 10%. It hasn't changed. And that's where we talk about the positivity rate. And now when we're seeing in Florida, positivity rates, 16, 17, 20%, um, that's where we can see that that is not, Not accurate. In fact, if you look at numbers from the COVID tracking project and Johns Hopkins, who have been really good at tracking all the numbers from the coronavirus, you take the last seven days of May and compare them to the last seven days of June. So in the country, our tests have gone up about 40.5%, but the cases of positive tests have increased by 83% and that's in the country as a whole. So it has not gone up by the same amount as you would expect it to. Now you take Florida as a specific example, and you take from the last seven days of May to the last seven days of June, our testing has gone up 88.3%. So we've almost doubled our testing, but our new cases have gone up 726%. So you cannot, say that it's just because of testing that we've gotten these numbers. And I, I think anybody that understands the science behind that knows that that's, that's just a talking point to deflect from the real issue. Oh
1: my God, that was fantastic. But wouldn't you say, yeah, Amber? Jeffy, I'm with you, Mike drop.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't you say though, Amber, I think, but there's also the, the, the idea when you're dealing with a, a pandemic that we don't know the actual percentage. Of positive. So, in theory, if we increase the testing dramatically, the positivity rate would actually go down because you would, in theory, hopefully be testing more people who were asymptomatic. You're testing people who are not symptomatic, basically. So, like the way we test right now is people are either exposed to somebody who has COVID or they have symptoms. And so they're naturally going to have a higher positivity rate because you're only testing people with symptoms. You're not testing people who don't have symptoms. You're not but just the randomly
3: testing the it, population correct. as a whole. So of if course. you had
0: enough tests, you would go out and randomly test. It would be like this in in your example of the candy bars. What we're doing is we're only testing the candy bar, candy bars that have nibbles out of them. Yeah. <laughs> and and then we're saying, oh well, we found twenty percent of them have insects in them that have nibbles in them, and the other eighty percent don't. And if you tested all of them, even if they had nibbles or not, you would be, that's more where you would expect to see the positivity rate go down with that. And so the fact that we've increased the number of testing, I think, and the positivity rate not only didn't go down, but went up shows that one, there's a lot more people who are symptomatic that are coming in. And two, that the testing cannot be the cause of all these increases. Before we go, Linda, I wanted to talk to you because you have recently gone through uh, the testing process and everything uh, that went along with it. And I was hoping that you could express your experience with it and how it went and your comments on it.
1: Sure. I, i just, I'm listening to Amber's information and it's important information to give because you're not going to get that level of distillation. And it's important to note too, that that just blows a hole into any type of Republican reasoning that says the opposite, that positivity rates aren't in fact going up because when you go out there and when you have been exposed or you have someone in your family that has COVID, That is the only time you're getting tested that is what i hear from all the testing facilities so when when my son this past uh, actually almost two weeks ago became symptomatic he had a fever we immediately thought well we need to go get tested and i wasn't feeling good i didn't have a fever but i wasn't feeling well i was feeling a bit off kilter so i said Okay, let's both of us, because we're the only ones in our family currently that are having these symptoms, let's go ahead and go. So right now in Collier County, there is not a drive-through testing facility that are provided by the government, I should say. So there's, there's some drive-up testing facilities, but all of those are for profit. So they are gonna run you roughly around $150. There are some other things that I've been seeing. When you go for a PCR test, a diagnostic test, where are you going to go? You can go to the hospital, you can go to the urgent care, or if you want a free one, you can go up to Lee County and they have specific times that they're doing it because they only have a certain number of tests. There's not unlimited tests out there. Or you can go to Immokalee, which is one of the only places here in Collier County that is actually doing like one of those drive up free testing that's not going to cost you any money. Again, those people are uh, Doctors Without Borders. They're not actually our county or our government that are doing that. And they only have a certain amount of tests. The same for the the for-profit testing that's all over the place. You can go to CVS, you can go to Walgreens, you can get a script and go to Quest. We went to Collier Urgent Care, And both of my tests for my son and I cost me $187. That is the negotiated rate through my insurance, $187. The absurdity of that, I think, should go without saying, because I'm lucky that I could plump that money down and say, yes, me wanting to know if my son or I are positive for this thing, is more important than me keeping $400 in my pocket. You know, I I, I could go ahead and do that. And then the rest of it is, you know, then we wait for those testing. The testing time periods are between two and 10 days. My test came back in two days. I was thankfully negative. My son's test took nine whole days, nine days. And he unfortunately came back positive. So we're in quarantine. We had been in quarantine before because we knew we had a test out there, so we did the responsible thing. I want also to add that when I was at the urgent care and I asked what my protocol should be, it was suggested that I stay home. Not, It's imperative that you stay home, that's it. And then when we finally got our test results nine days later, there's really no protocol for how to handle that it's amazing. I mean, it is all over the place. Whoever you talk to the urgent care people that I talked to, they were great. They were wonderful. They don't know. So they, so I said, Oh my gosh. Okay. So he's positive. We've been quarantining. Um, you know, we've told everybody who we potentially could have, basically I'm telling him what I did and then he's, and then, so I go, okay, so at the end of our 14 days, we should get retested again. Right. Just to, just to make sure. And he said, nah, no. Just, just assume that you're fine, especially because at this point in time, we're all asymptomatic now. So no one in my house has active symptoms. So he said, no, we can't burn a test on you. We don't have enough tests to do that. In America, guys, this is all happening in America. Okay. I'm not currently in Brazil. <laughs> this is literally happening in Collier County, Florida. Okay. And so basically, here's what the HR person of my husband's company said, well, then what do we do? We need to kind of be aware, you know, my husband or my daughter, are they currently positive but asymptomatic, but they can't go get a test because they don't have symptoms, but maybe they wanna know so they don't walk around spreading and shedding this virus. And so the only alternative that, that HR person could potentially tell us is you might have to lie. And of course, did we feel comfortable with that? No. And so we didn't go get a diagnostic test. We managed to actually get a doctor to write us a script for an antibody test for both my husband and my daughter to just try and alleviate some of that not knowing. So, you know, we are awaiting those, those test results, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say that is, that is this is America. I don't understand how then our president can stand up and say, well, we're rocking this whole testing thing. It- and, and I want to say, here's my total price tag. Ready? Because my kids, my husband and my, and my daughter have done these antibodies tests. I am currently now at, at $750 in testing for my family. My one family. Wow.
0: Yeah. And then you throw in the fact that, you know, we've talked about what the whole purpose of the shutdown was in the past. But, you know, the, the fact that you go and get tested, you're not given any instructions on how to proceed while waiting for the test. Then you get a positive test and there's no instruction on how to proceed now that you've had a positive test. Just goes to show that the state of Florida, Governor DeSantis's administration, as well as the United States and the Trump administration failed to use that shutdown period properly to prepare for reopening because every single nonprofit and think tank out there, both on the left and the right, including the White House's own arguments on their website for reopening, stated that you should increase testing. You should have contact tracing in place and that you encourage social distancing, mask wearing, and then you follow the numbers. and the fact that we don't have a plan for reopening and when someone gets positive to say, this is how you need to handle it and who did you come in contact with and let's call them and figure it out is just evidence of, you know, the, the Republicans' lack of leadership, their abdication of responsibility. It is it is just so demoralizing to see that all of that effort that, that both Democrats and Republicans did in the month. April in not going out and closing down businesses and all of that squandered and nothing was put in place to be able to mitigate these types of things when they arise.
3: And not only did they not prepare for this in any um, organized way, we also found out this week that um, several Democratic leaders had called out that there apparently was $25 billion that Congress passed um, back in April and $14 billion of that has not even been spent yet, which was supposed to go to increased testing and contact tracing and money for uninsured people to get coronavirus testing. And they're obviously livid at why in the middle of this pandemic and we Congress has passed this and they say that the most important thing is to do these things, increase testing, do contact tracing, and yet we have $14 billion at our disposal that is just sitting there as our cases are spiking.
1: Yeah, I feel like that as we move into November, so much of that time was wasted. We have so many people in this country suffering And I think that when you have these ideological debates with people that they're like, well, look, you know, like, you know, there aren't all these great numbers of deaths like they were saying. But that's not what we should be talking about. I mean, enough people have died, you know, and now we're having our elderly communities basically hold up in their apartments, having zero quality of life. And for a lot of people, that seems okay to them. We dropped the ball on this. Testing sucks, okay? I've been through it. Um, The way that we're currently attacking this virus absolutely sucks. People are getting it, and Republicans don't really seem to be caring about this. I try to hold on to this thought. If you look at our country as
3: a whole, and you look at what most people think we should be doing, by far the most people believe that we should be using all of these social distancing, we should be wearing masks, The government should be doing more. There should be more testing. It's just, it's our leadership and the voice of a loud minority who are opposing these measures. But the country as a whole does not believe this. It's hard to feel that sometimes when there's a very loud minority. But I really do think that as a whole, I I mean, I really hope, I really hope that as a whole, we are, we want what is best for most of the people. And one thing that I wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about the masks, because I think that's been one of the most ridiculous debates that we've had throughout this entire thing. But Goldman Sachs did some research recently, and I read about this in Forbes, that they are estimating that if we were to have a national mask mandate, it could save the economy $1 trillion in loss of uh, business that comes from people getting sick or further lockdowns. So if you talk about these people screaming about the economy, you know, just wear your damn mask. And that will probably have the biggest impact on helping our economy than anything that we can do right now. And I mean, I think it might be a sign of the apocalypse, but even like Mitch McConnell is saying that it should be mandatory that people are wearing masks. Like I have a big problem with why are now people like Mitch McConnell and Dick Cheney coming out in the end of june and saying these things when we've had three months of people being drilled into their heads that masks is like uh, violating their freedom why wasn't this said earlier when it could have actually maybe affected people and not got instilled in their psyche it polling looks... <sighs> oh, yeah. thank you Jesus. Polling. that's the word that's why. damn that's it the word. Right.
0: yeah it's polling polling has come out to show that that, that argument is not working joe biden's is picking up votes with seniors who are hearing the rainbow bridge suggestion that they should just stay at home or move on to you know the afterlife and they're saying i don't like that plan and they're saying i like this other guy's plan who's requiring people to wear masks so that we can all get back to life all of us all of the people not just the young people not just the people who are healthy because let's not forget it's not just the old people It's the people with pre-existing conditions, you have diabetes or if you have some sort of comorbidity that that makes you more susceptible to this virus that can happen at any age. And you're also one of the people who said, hey, you're just going to have to suck it up because we're all going to just keep doing what we're doing. The main change is polling. And you're seeing polls right now that are showing really large leads for Vice President Biden over Donald Trump, not just nationally which you know we saw similar things with regard to Hillary Clinton back in 2016 that she had a a pretty substantial national lead but she was doing much more poorly in the swing states but some of these polls that have come out recently are showing 10 and 12 point leads for Vice President Biden nationally but if you go to the state polls and we look at Florida which by the way All of you who have listened to the podcast last week and listened to uh, Chairwoman Terry Rizzo talk about about how important Florida was. Uh, She made the point that Florida is a one state stop for President Trump's reelection. He cannot win the presidency without winning the state of Florida. It's just not possible. We have too many electoral votes. We're too important of a state. And if uh, Vice President Biden can win this state, it basically ends all of President Trump's chances to gain re-election. And we have gotten polling here in the last couple weeks that show a really dire picture for President Trump at this stage of the game. So the New York Times-Siena College upshot poll came out on June 25th in Florida, and it showed Biden with a six-point edge. And then Fox News came out the same day on June 25th and showed a nine-point edge. And then just yesterday, a change research poll came out and showed a five-point edge for Biden. Every poll that has come out in the state of Florida over the last month have shown anywhere from a three-point Biden lead all the way up to an 11-point Biden lead. And so to your point, Amber, regarding Mitch McConnell is why would Mitch McConnell be saying this? Mitch McConnell is now worried about the Senate. He's worried about maintaining his control of the Senate, and he's seeing these polls come out in all of the swing states, swing states like Texas. Vice President Biden is even with Trump in Texas. He's ahead in Arizona. He's ahead in North Carolina. He's ahead in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin. He's ahead in every single swing state, and he is dead even in Georgia and Texas, and when you see that as the majority leader and he has senators that are up for reelection in Colorado, in North Carolina, when you have these types of, of numbers showing in the polling, Republicans are realizing that they're hitching their wagon to President Trump and his lack of mask wearing agenda. They're realizing that that's a losing argument, that they're going to lose and lose big if they continue on it. And they're trying to pivot out of it. And it is up to us as Democrats to hold them accountable to the damage they've done to this country over the last three months. Because if they had been handling this the way they're handling it now and been advocating for mask wearing, we wouldn't be where we are right now. We would have a much lower rate and we would be having a much better time reopening. But now you're seeing all of these different states that are having these outbreaks have to reverse decisions on reopening. And the positive economic data that has come out over the last two months with these reopenings is going to reverse. And you're going to start to see more layoffs again because you can't keep open with these numbers going up. You run the risk of hospitals being overrun and not being able to handle it.
3: Yeah, and I, I meant to mention this when we were talking about the coronavirus, but you mentioned hospitals filling up and was just came out this week that three of the nine acute care facilities in our area, their ICU beds are full. I was
1: like, that's relevant information because yeah. that is that is the argument that people are making to make themselves feel better about these numbers. They're like, these numbers are existing. But the almighty meter of our hospitals, and I get this all the time when I engage someone about this information, is that, yeah, well, our hospitals aren't full. Right. People aren't dying. Because, well, <laughs> bitches, they are. They are. They are. How much well, more the, bull do you want them to get? Yes.
3: And the you know, the thing that pisses me off about people talking about, oh, our deaths numbers are down. Well, there's a couple different things there. One... As we've noticed in the number of cases coming back positive, that it's in the younger population who obviously have a lower mortality rate. Not that they're not going into hospitals and having some impacts and filling up our ICU beds, but they're not actually dying at the same amount. Two, the elderly population has maintained their caution and kept themselves a lot safer than they were when this started. So you're not seeing those high numbers of deaths in, in the older population or immunocompromised population. Three, throughout this process, we've learned better techniques in treating this though, even though people are getting it and going into the hospital and maybe even needing to be ventilated, they are able to keep them alive better than they were at the beginning of this. And four, we also know that there is a lag in the death once people begin to contract this. So it's very likely, and I hope that it's not the case, but it's very likely that in a number of weeks, we may see another increase in the death rate from this as well.
1: That's that's such important information, Amber, because people really forget that. I hope that doesn't come down the pipeline. But our numbers are growing so exponentially we don't know what's going to happen in 3 we to don't four know weeks.
3: yeah we don't well know.
0: we all we talk about percentages we talk about the positivity rate but there's another rate which is the rate of hospitalization mm-hmm. and so the other thing with the death rate that right now yes we're being able to care for people because we have space and we can handle it and we have capacity to to be able to handle the, the amount of people that are in there as of right now but the rate that john hopkins has been stating is our rate of hospitalization in the state of florida is 12%. so 12% of those people who are contracting the virus are ending up in the hospital. and so i just look at that and say we had 10,000 cases today.
3: yeah, 12% of those are going to be in the hospital gonna, that's in another a number of thousand a week.
0: people. you know, that, that are going to be in the hospital in a week or two weeks depending on how how severe their symptoms get and while they may not be so severe that they need to be on a ventilator but they're severe enough to be in the hospital and that causes problems not just for them but it causes problems because now capacity is overloaded so then you start getting problems when someone comes in for a heart attack or for a stroke or a car accident and you don't have the staff to be able to handle the amount of people that are coming in in the community this is the part of it that nobody talks about and it's like that's going to cause problems down the line And so, you know, COVID affects all of these things and we've had a hundred thousand cases since June 5th in the state of Florida, a hundred thousand cases in the state of Florida since June 5th. So if you figure 10% of those, that's like 10,000 people that are going to be going into the hospital and, and that's, that's in this week or the next week, you know, or the week after that. And eventually if this continues doesn't matter how severe they are it doesn't matter if they require ventilators it's going to overwhelm the existing system and you're going to have problems across the board and did you guys see the two op-eds that were written in the Naples Daily News about yes. mask wearing
3: yeah I, I just have to i have
0: to speak this is one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because the democratic party cannot get an op-ed published in the naples daily news We have written op-eds as an opposing viewpoint to Republican policies that have been put forward by our elective representatives and the Naples Daily News will not publish them. And yet we have a situation where mask wearing is now being debated and the Naples Daily News on the one side, the pro mask wearing was a physician with 25 years experience here locally handling diseases, and different types of ailments here in the community. And she wrote an entire op-ed talking about the effectiveness of masks and the importance of masks and why everyone should wear it. And then the Naples Daily News then puts an opposing viewpoint article from someone and that person's qualifications for being able to write an op-ed on why people shouldn't be wearing masks. His background was he was the inventor of the lollipop brush teeth. Now, I, I just, I'm not making that up. That's not a joke. That's literally the bio they put at the bottom of the op-ed. This is the problem. Mask wearing is effective, period. That's a fact. It's not disputed. It's and no so th- with the Naples Daily News, if there was someone who was making the argument that two plus two doesn't equal four, with the Naples Daily News, search out and find some person to write an op-ed that says two plus two equals five. Like, what value does that have? to the reader in Collier County. All it does is it suggests that there's this open debate on whether masks actually prevent germs from going into people, other people's bodies. It's like, I think,
3: really? this, I, I think this has been a, an issue that I've been seeing for a number of years, giving, you know, this whole fair and balanced idea that you need to have both viewpoints. Well, if there's 99.9% of people who are saying one thing, and then 0.1% of somebody has a different viewpoint, putting one person on to talk about what the majority says and putting the other person on and giving them equal time is not fair. And it is not balanced. And there's this mindset that you need to have both opinions. I'm all for differing opinions, but it sets up this false equivalency. And they do this with everything. They do it with climate science in particular, you have such agreement on one side and then you get these few stray people and they always give them equal amount of time and i think we need to stop doing this and believing that both people need to be heard when one viewpoint is clearly not backed by any sort of science
0: i agree amen all right so uh On that note, we'll go ahead and call it quits on this week's discussion. Thank you, Linda and Amber, for coming on.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeffy.
0: So that's our show. I want to thank Dr. Severese for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 114 days left until Election Day, and it depends on what you do today on whether or not we win this november so please step up and help hope everyone's staying safe out there until next time so long